0: Rumpel and the Teenage Werewolf by John Mortimer with Timothy West as Horace Rumpel and Prunella Scales as his wife Hilda
1: believe me, Mr. Rumpole, we've tried. No one can say we haven't tried. His own telly, his own telephone number...
2: He's online, Mr. Rumpole. He can access the world from his own bedroom.
1: Trainers? You can't imagine the amount Ben's cost us in trainers. And we've
2: always done our best to be fair to him, not judgmental.
1: Chris is always so fair-minded. He tries to reason with him.
2: But it's very hard, Mr. Rumpole, to reason with a slammed door. Yeah, yeah. Chris
1: understands young people. He gives his time generously to a youth club in Worsfield. Hmm? He helps them to become computer literate.
2: It's the struggle, Mr. Rumpole. Every day's a worry. Where is Ben now? Hmm. Will he come home? Will there be a row? Has he gone missing? It's a, it's a nightmare for his mother.
3: She's losing weight over it. Really? The couple who sat in my client's chairs that spring morning were what she who must be obeyed would have called thoroughly nice people. They might qualify to represent the best of Middle England. Modest and intelligent, capable of serious concern, and also able to make jokes at their own expense. Chris and Hermione Swithin were, I thought, the type of people who supported the local Oxfam shop, gave generously to hospices, read to the blind, whipped round for funds to help the victims of floods and earthquakes in distant parts of the world, and organised free trips to the seaside for the poor and elderly. And why were they paying a visit to my room in Chambers?
1: We're expecting Ben here at any moment, Mr Rumpole.
3: Because young Ben Swithin, Hermione's son by a previous marriage and Chris's stepson, was facing charges of harassment and assault to make his debut in front of a circuit judge, circus judges, I call them, in Hartscombe, a quiet riverside town near the family home.
1: Ben was four when Chris took him on, Mr Rumpole. He's treated him just as though he was his own son, and very little thanks he's got for it. He can be quite beastly to us at times. In fact, we call him the teenage werewolf. (laughs) 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 Yes, that's right. (laughs) (laughs) Well, not to his face, of course. To his face, we always try to build him up. Give him confidence. And the
3: trouble came because of this girl, Felicity Halliday, mm. age 17.
1: Felicity, yes. Well, she's at Hartscombe College with Ben. They're doing A-levels. People all say she's so attractive. Chris doesn't think much of her.
2: Well, she's nothing much to write home about.
1: <laughs> she lives near our house at Merivale, just a mile or two outside Hartscombe. Chris used to drive her and Ben into school together until her father stopped it.
2: He stopped it
3: when Ben started sending her the emails. <laughs>
1: You've seen the emails, Mr.
3: Rumpole. Prosecution exhibits part of the charge of harassment, and all, I'm afraid, coming from the computer. We gave Ben for his birthday. Oh,
1: Chris is so generous with birthday presents. I, I, I don't know what you think of the emails, Mr. Rumpole.
3: I would say they were first amorous, then obscene, then promising to perform acts of love which were eccentric and sometimes dangerous. Yeah, I find it quite terrifying the things teenagers know about nowadays. And then, of
2: course,
0: there is the physical assault.
3: The speaker was the Swithin solicitor, a Mr. Beasley. Mm -hmm. A a a fresh-faced, grey-haired man in a tweed suit who looked as though he'd be far happier wading through a trout stream uh, than in a barrister's chambers discussing erotic Mm -hmm. emails.
0: you remember that Miss Halliday was walking down a lane in Hartscombe Mm -hmm. after dark. She felt she was being followed and someone close behind her... Fastened his arms about her. It lasted only a few seconds, but she felt a kiss on the back of her neck before she struggled free and ran. And after that, she never walked that way again, by day or by
1: night. Well, Ben says he didn't do it. Well, of course he
0: does. That's why we've come
3: to see you, Mr. Rumpole. But the werewolf himself, it seems, has not come to see me.
1: He promised to be here. He was at a party in London last night, and he promised to come here on time. We
2: gave him full directions and a map. Seems he just hasn't bothered.
3: Oh, we'll fix another date. I have to see Ben to get at the truth of the matter. Well, even if he does show up,
2: he won't talk to you, I'm afraid.
1: Oh, we knew he was difficult, selfish, utterly incapable of caring about how Chris or I felt. Well, if he didn't think he was a criminal. Do what you can for him, Mr. Rumpole.
2: You see how it is, Mr. Rumpole. I love that. He's the only son I've ever had.
0: Mm. Well, then. uh, Mr Rumpel? Mm.
3: Uh, Oh, I'm I'm sorry. I was just looking through these emails. They're outrageous, of course. But some of them are quite poetic.
1: To me, they're, they're all quite disgusting.
3: Yes, I'm afraid the judge is likely to agree with you. When were teenagers invented? I tried to remember myself, slightly spotty, a great deal thinner. I tolerated my parents' and my father's often repeated stories. I understood his reluctance to spend more time than was absolutely essential with an adolescent whose favourite reading was notable British trials. I put up with my mother's resigning herself with a sigh to the fact that my failure to keep my room tidy would make it unlikely that I would ever marry. On the whole, I would say I was a more conventional character than Ben, politer, more easily imposed upon, and with a respectful authority which has dwindled rather than increased over the years.
0: I- I'm very sorry, Mr. Rumpole. The Swithers just can't persuade their son to come to London for a conference.
3: Oh, well then Mohammed must come to the mountain.
4: Uh,
3: Mohammed? Who did you say? Uh, d- no, don't concern yourself, Beasley, with Mohammed. It was just a figure of speech. Just find out which evening this week it would be convenient for me to come down to Hartscombe. I can easily manage that, and you and I will talk to our client together. Okay. Very good. Very good. It wasn't until the end of the week that the Swithins could take time off from their charity committees, their book club gatherings, Chris's prison visiting, and Hermione's quiz in the village hall to support the handicapped. And Beasley and I finally visited Merivale, the country home. It was an old brick-and-flint farmhouse with magnificent barns from which the sheep and cows had long gone, and the hay moved out to make room for Chris's computers and office equipment— Installed so that he could run his particular dot com business from a part of what was left of rural England. I'm really sorry, Ben's not here, Mister (laughs)
0: Rumpole.
3: I must talk to the client in person. Neither of you is in a position to tell me what I need to know, and neither are you in danger of facing a five-year sentence. No, that's certainly true, Mister
0: Rumpole.
1: He promised he'd leave work early. He's been helping out at Il Paradiso, Uh,
0: the Italian restaurant in school? Uh. (laughs) Ah.
1: Oh, it's really too
5: bad of Ben. He
3: sometimes stays in the restaurant talking, even after it's closed. So he talks to someone? Well, that's encouraging. If he does that, there's no good reason why he shouldn't talk to me. There was a silence then. Mr. Beasley and I were sitting in Chris' within's study. The room had an old-fashioned comfort, with a crackling log fire, armchairs, and an impressive collection of books lining the walls, with the light shining on their golden titles. Ah. We had been drinking brandy, listening to Schubert, enjoying all the delights of a civilization which had not apparently rubbed off on Hermione's son. As we waited for him, conversation seemed to have run out with the brandy, until Chris, after prolonged and careful thought, said... Uh, Well, he's not coming. I don't think he wants to talk to you, Mr. Rumpel. Uh, Well, then I might as well go home. Oh, by the way, uh, could I borrow your loo before I go?
1: Oh, I'm so sorry. It's up the
3: stairs. Uh, first on the left, when you get to the landing. The bathroom, when I got to it, needed no apologies. The air had been freshened with a no-doubt chemical, but pleasant smell of fresh apples. The porcelain gleamed, the loo seat was of dark mahogany. The towels looked soft and inviting. Glass shelves on one side of the wash basin supported Hermione's array of lotions and unguents, her shampoos, perfumes, cotton wool buds, tweezers, and electric toothbrush. The shelves on the other side were Chris's, displaying his silver-backed brushes, his electric razor, florist soap and anti-dandruff shampoo, and a more masculine perfume labelled For Men. <laughs> I suppose it was a small part of me that wanted, like one of my regular clients, Chirpy Malloy, the bathing burglar, to get something for nothing, that tempted me to sprinkle a little of this on the rumpole handkerchief. The smell was fresh, strong, and reassuringly uh, male. Smelling like that, I felt, qualified me to meet and tame the werewolf. Mohammed was ready for the mountain. At your Paradiso in Hartscombe Marketplace, the lights still shone, though the blinds were down. After Beasley had rattled the door, it was opened by a young man, clearly one of the waiters.
6: Ah, oh, Ben! Just a person we wanted to see. We're closing. I've got to clear up tables with my mates. What do you want? Well, shall we sit down for a moment? Have a glass of wine with us. Mm, I don't drink. Who are you? I'm a lawyer, but don't let that put you off. (laughs) Mr. Rumpole is going to represent you in court. That's right. Mum and Dad wanted me to see a lawyer, but I'm not bothered. Why aren't you bothered? Because it's useless. Why is it useless? Because you can't help me. They've all made up their minds about me. Suppose I told you you're innocent. What did you say? I said you're innocent until they prove you guilty. They won't have much trouble doing that, though, right? Hmm? How do you know? Police... They told me. There's nothing much they can do about it, not Mum and Dad. You called Christopher Swithin Dad? Yeah. Mum wanted me to. I see. For a werewolf, you seem to be singularly obliging. (laughs) Werewolf? Oh, yeah. That's what they call me. Do you mind? I'm not bothered. Tell me about this girl, this Felicity.
0: She goes to your college, doesn't she? I don't
6: go near her. I'm not allowed. I'm not allowed within miles of her, like I'm a sort of fatal disease. Hmm.
3: Tell us more about her. He picked up a table knife and, quite ineffectually, tried to saw at the edge of the table. This occupied him seriously for a while, and
6: suddenly, unexpectedly, he smiled at me. Oh, Flea, she's all right. You've known her a long time? Forever, since primary school. Did you fancy her at all? Flea? I've known her since we were kids. Like, we were just friends, mates. Dad used to pick her up on the school run and I'd see her every day. Mates. That's all we were, right? Mm. They say you sent her messages. Why would I want to send her messages when I saw her all the time? There wouldn't have been a whole lot of point in it. So you didn't send her emails? You believe I did, don't you? I never said that. Like, everyone believes I did. Not everyone. Who doesn't, then? I told you, I don't.
3: I'm in no hurry to believe anything. I assume you're innocent. What? He stopped sawing, then, having done the edge of the table little visible damage, and
6: put the knife down and looked at me. No one said that to me before. You're going to speak up for me like in court? If you want me to. There's nothing much you could do. Oh, yes,
3: there is. I'd see if they could prove it.
6: Uh, your parents thought you might want
0: someone younger to represent you. Hmm? So what do you think, then?
3: He flicked the knife with a finger and spun it as it lay on the table. I remembered at his age spinning knives to make decisions or answer questions, even to point out a guilty party. It came to rest pointing at me.
6: All right then. You'll do right. You're cool. Hmm.
3: Would you agree, Mr. Beasley, that I'm cool? Oh, no, no. Of course you are, Mr. Rumpel.
6: Can I go back to my friends now? Of course. Come and see me in London. Uh, just one more thing. What? Do you like poetry? Poetry? Yes.
3: stuff in short lines, it rhymes quite often. Do you read it ever? Not
6: really, I'm not bothered. Do you read it at school at all? At school, yeah. Most of it's boring. Have you read Yeats, for instance? Yeats? Never heard of him. Sorry, I've got to go now.
3: And he was away. He back to his own world with the young people of the college who found poetry boring... ...and helped out at Ile Paradiso in the evenings... ...and we to the railway station.
0: It's hopeless, though, isn't it? Hmm? All the emails have got his name on them, for God's sake. They'll come from his machine. He called her Flea. What's that got to do with that? If you nursed a
3: secret, powerful lust for a girl so strong... ...that you bombarded her with passionate and sexually explicit emails... If you were tormented with such urgent longings,
0: do you think you'd call her flea? I still think we're on a loser. I mean, is this flea business your only point? No,
3: not quite the only one. I got a late train back from Hartscombe, I undressed in the bathroom of the Foxbury Mansion's flat, then I climbed in my pyjamas and fitted myself into my side of the bed quietly so as not to wake Hilda, but her voice boomed out of the darkness.
2: Rumpole, oh. you smell of cheap scent. Well,
3: uh, not cheap, I think by no means cheap. I found myself in a strange bathroom, and I took advantage.
2: What have you been up to?
3: Oh, a dinner at the Myrtle with a couple of starlets, and then off for a spot of lap dancing. Oh, and I'm I mean, afraid I caught a bit of a cold playing shimmy. We'll have to take out a second mortgage. Absolute stuff and nonsense. You tell as many lies
2: as your clients. It must be catching. It's a disgusting smell. Mm. A strange bathroom, indeed.
3: The voice of she who must be obeyed died away into the night as I, too, fell asleep. Wonder of wonders. The werewolf had agreed to come to a conference in my chambers in Equity Court. His family wanted to join the party, and I had to dissuade them
1: naturally. We want to be with him when he sees you, Mr. Rumpel.
3: He's worried his mother almost to
1: death. Well, worried you too, darling. I told you, Mr. Rumpole, Chris treats him exactly as though he was his own son. Yes, I can
3: understand how well he's
2: given us such an incredibly hard time for years. Now this.
3: I don't think you have any idea what we're going through. Yeah, I'm sure it's been horrible. So, look, why not take a little time off, drop into a cinema, have tea at a posh hotel. I just need to see my client alone. Otherwise, he might be reluctant to say things that you'd find hurtful.
2: Believe me, Mr. Rumpel, he's perfectly capable of saying things we find hurtful to our faces. (laughs) He's quite prepared to tell his mother she's fat, or or me that I'm drunk when I just happen to open another
3: bottle of wine and did Then I ask you to leave to save yourselves further
2: pain. But I suppose you'll allow us
3: to attend our son's trial. (laughs) That'll be far the most painful moment for us. Of course I want you to be there. I'm sure you'll be ready and willing to give evidence of Ben's good character. But for the moment, goodbye.
1: Goodbye, Mr. Rumpel.
3: When I was alone in my room, I looked at the email Ben the werewolf had sent to announce his arrival. Like all the other emails in the case, it was headed chimes at merivale.co.uk and the message read see you at four tomorrow. The words C and U being written as the letters C and U and four and two as the numbers four and two. I found this method of calligraphy only vaguely entertaining and was considerably relieved when Beasley led the client, dead on time, into my room. Hi. Oh, hello. Thank you for coming. Please sit down. Ben Swithin had dressed down for the occasion, wearing jeans with ink writing on the knees, a baggy sweater with holes in it, and trainers that might have been used for a marathon run through mud. He looked even younger than before a face as yet unmarked by the years, a contrast to the carefully, expensively preserved good looks of his mother and stepfather. So I turned from the alleged werewolf to the pile of printed-out emails which dealt with an encyclopedia of sexual fantasies. The penetration of every orifice, the ritual humiliations to be inflicted on the innocent Felicity a girl doing her A-levels at Hartscombe College. The language was constantly obscene, frequently ugly, but, from time to time, <laughs> unexpectedly poetic. This
6: is gross, werewolf read Dude, through them. Who says loins? And appeared is genuinely shocked. That's meaning whoever wrote this deserves locking up for good. But you admit it's your email address. Chimes and so on. Oh, yeah. My dad thought of that. Chimes. The chimes of Big Ben. See, me being Ben... It was his idea of a joke. Uh
2: Uh-huh, yes.
6: I've got to tell you, Mr Rumpole, I never could dream of doing half those things to anybody. Most of these messages are timed at around 11 o'clock at night. Were you
3: always at home at that time?
6: Not always. Where were you? Working late at the restaurant. Going to a party, staying over, sleeping on someone's floor. We can check your times if you paradiso. That's a job for you, Mr Beasley. Oh, thank you, very much. And one
3: more job... Fig Newton who
0: sorry
3: Ferdinand Inigo Gerald Newton ah. mm-hmm. the king of inquiry agents the best follower of suspects and watcher
6: at windows tell him we've got work for him mr mad i'll give <coughs> mr newton a call i've got to get back now uh, going to a party. all right i'll see you in court they're not going to like me there perhaps not at first
0: Amazing, some of these email propositions. Mm
5: -hmm.
0: Like the one about the honey. I don't know whether I'd suggest it to my wife, Avril. Mind you, she used to be a bit of a goer.
3: I said nothing. I knew that she who must be obeyed would never countenance being used as a receptacle for honey. There are certain cases undertaken by a criminal defender in which, on entering court, you feel you've stepped into a giant refrigerator into which you're shut, freezing for the rest of the trial. The cold winds of disapproval howl at you from all sides, and every time you stand up, you feel as if you are clearly identified as a septic sore on the body of the nation, closely related to the alleged sex offender in the dock. Such was my feeling when I entered the Crown Court. His Honour, Judge Dennis Wintergreen, a square-jawed, relentlessly pedantic figure, clearly thought that any defence of the werewolf in the dock was simply a waste of public money.
4: Members of the jury, you will have the horrible task of reading through the disgusting emails sent to the young girl victim in this case. To spare the members of the public and others in the court the embarrassment of hearing all these filthy documents read out in the prosecution's opening, I propose to leave the reading of the emails to the jury. Do you agree, Mr. (coughs) Hodinot? Very well, Your Honor.
3: Adrian Hodinot was a decent enough prosecutor who used to say that he only did the job to keep his Great Dane in hot dinners. Of course he agreed with the judge... But I had something to say upon the subject. There is just one matter, Your Honour. Yes,
4: Mr. Rumpel, whatever is it. Surely you want to spare everyone embarrassment?
3: His Honour looked at me as though I was some serial rapist who'd crept into court disguised in a wig and gown. Could my learned friend for the prosecution read us the email on
4: page 21 of the bundle? Do you object to this, Mr. Hodinot? Not really, my law. Ah, oh, very well, then. At least it's a short email... Very short, menor, Have you got it in your bundles, members of the jury? How can your terrified, vague fingers push my feathered glory from your loosening thighs? I will produce a shudder in your loins. Ours will be an historic moment when I, the great bird god, swoop down on you. Is there any particular reason why you want that one red, Mr.
3: Rumble? The words don't suggest anything to you, Your Honor. Nothing
6: more than
4: that, whoever wrote them must have a peculiarly filthy mind.
3: That may not be quite fair to the particular author concerned.
4: That will be a matter for the jury to decide, Mr. Rumpel.
3: Exactly. So wouldn't it be best if Your Honor would refrain from comment until that time comes?
4: Continue with your case, Mr. Hodinot. I'll call Felicity Halliday. Call Felicity Halliday?
5: I swear by Almighty God that the evidence I shall give will be the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth.
4: Are you Felicity Alice Halliday? I am. Your address?
5: The Copse Merivale, near Hartscombe, Oxen.
4: I think you are 17 years old? Yes, I am. And do you go to school with Ben Swithin, the defendant in this case?
5: At Hartscombe, yes.
4: She stood
3: in the witness box. A slim, pretty girl with clear features who answered questions calmly, sensibly, and without embarrassment. I was at
5: primary school with Ben Swithin. You could
3: see her, when the bloom of her youth had faded a little, as a loyal wife and, like Hermione, a frequenter of charity dinners and coffee mornings in Hartscombe.
4: Did you receive the various emails? Yes. I think the last one was sent only three weeks ago. Yes. The last one only three weeks ago, members of the jury. Did you know who sent them?
5: Ben Swithin.
4: How did you know that?
5: He'd sent me emails before. (laughs) I knew his email address. The chimes... Did you
4: accuse Ben Swithin of sending you these filthy emails?
5: I did. And he denied it.
4: Denied it? Did he?
5: Yes, he did. And when they got worse, I told my father, who gave them to the police.
4: A very wise course, you may think, members of the jury. I'd like to come to an incident which occurred when you were walking home one night in Hartscombe last October.
5: I'd been to the youth club in Worsfield, but I left quite early because I had an essay to finish. I was walking down the narrow passage that leads to the square in Hartscombe. I thought someone was following me, so I walked quickly, but then I was grabbed from behind. I got a damp kiss on my neck. I managed to break away from him. I ran then. I didn't stop until I got to the square and found my parents' car. They'd been having dinner in Il Paradiso.
4: You never saw your attacker?
5: No. I thought it must be Ben because he'd sent the emails.
4: So you thought it was Ben?
5: Yes. He was someone strong. He had a smell. I noticed that.
4: What sort of smell?
5: An aftershave. Macismo 3. I know it because my dad uses it. It's quite a nice smell, really.
4: But it wasn't nice being attacked in the dark alley. Please don't ask leading questions. Have you some objection, Mr. Rumpole?
3: My learned friend asked a question which suggests an answer to the witness. That's called a leading question, and I object to it.
4: I will allow the question. Miss
3: Halliday, <clears throat> was it nice being attacked in that way?
5: No, sir. It certainly was not.
3: It certainly was not. As he wrote them down... He repeated the words loudly and clearly, just in case we had the odd deaf juror. And then he asked, as though expecting the answer no... Have you any questions of this witness, Mr. Rumpole? Just a few, my lord. I turned to Felicity and became, I hope, Rumpole at his most gentle, charming and polite. Miss Halliday, when you began to get these disgusting emails, did you tackle Ben Swithin on the subject... Yes, I did. And what was his reaction?
5: He denied sending them. Did you believe him? No.
3: She didn't believe him. His honor was loudly dictating his note to himself and doing it so that the jury would remember what seemed to him the important bits. So, when you were attacked by someone you couldn't see... But she could smell him, Mr. Rumble. Remember that. I'm so grateful to your honor for raising that point. Your honor is most helpful. (laughs) Tell me, Miss Halliday, Ben Swithin isn't exactly a snappy dresser, is he? Not really. So are you suggesting that my client put on this quite expensive aftershave that night for the sole purpose of grabbing you from behind in a dark passage? Mr. Rumpole, hasn't this young lady suffered enough? She has certainly suffered, I quite agree with that.
4: Then why add to her suffering by making her go over all those painful matters again? Can't you leave it at that, Mr. Rumpole? Your Honour
3: is telling me I shouldn't cross-examine. Not to cause this young girl pain, Mr. Rumpel. Then how about the pain inflicted on the young boy in the dock if he's convicted of a crime he didn't commit? Naturally, when it comes to sentence, I shall have regard to the amount of embarrassment caused to Miss Halliday at the trial. Oh, you mean you intend to punish my client for the way I choose to conduct his case? Mr. Rumpel, that was an outrageous remark. Like your honor's intervention... If you stop my cross-examination, I will apply immediately to the Court of Appeal. This silenced the judge, perhaps temporarily stunned him. As he picked himself up and regained consciousness, I read the note from Chris that had been handed to me. Don't Don't ask any ask any more questions, was what my client's stepfather had written. I squashed his note into a small ball and dropped it on the floor. As the judge appeared to relent.
4: You may cross-examine, Mr. Rumpel. Whether your questions help your case is quite another matter. Uh, Miss
3: Halliday, Mm. you have known Ben for a long time.
5: Yes, we were at primary school together.
3: And at secondary school. And then you were getting ready for A-levels at Harscombe College together. That's right. Apart from the alleged assault in the dark, at any time at all when you were with Ben, has he done anything you could complain of?
5: Not that I remember.
3: Did you like him until you got these messages?
5: <clears throat> he was all right. I mean, well, yes, we were good friends.
3: Did he ever try to kiss you?
5: He wasn't one of his girlfriends. So
3: he never kissed you?
5: No, not that I remember. Or try to? I don't think so, no.
3: So, when you were told that he'd written these emails, did it come as a complete surprise to you? Were you amazed?
5: Well, to be honest, I was completely gobsmacked.
3: <sighs> On that note, the court rose for lunch, and I invited Horinot, the friendly prosecutor to Il Paradiso, where we enjoyed a quick cutlet milanese and a glass or two of Chianti red.
4: I can't imagine young Ben Swithin doing a thing like that. But you never know, do you? No, you never know. I've thought of a scheme, old darling. Hmm? It'll bring the
3: case to a fairly quick conclusion, so you can spend more time with that great Dane of yours. Gertrude, isn't it?
4: failure, uh, actually, bless her. <laughs> She could do with a few days out in the country. Good. Ah. Here's what I plan to do.
3: And I do need your cooperation. Mm. And then I told Adrian Hoddenot all I knew and most of what I guessed. It was mid-afternoon before I got round to opening my case. I reminded the jury about the presumption of innocence and the burden of proof. Then I announced that I would call Ben's stepfather first, as he was a busy man and anxious to get away. To the judge's disappointment, prosecuting counsel raised no objection, and Chris Swithin made his way to the witness box.
2: I swear by Almighty God that the evidence I shall give will be the truth, the whole
3: truth, and nothing but the truth. He turned respectfully to the judge and answered my questions in clear, ringing tones. Are you Christopher <coughs> St. John Swithin? I am. Do you live at Merivale House, Merivale, near Hartscombe Auction? I do. And your occupation is? Chairman and Managing Director of Swithin Communications Limited. <coughs> do you carry out most of your business from your country home? I do
2: as many people do nowadays in this age of information technology.
3: You are fortunate, Mr. Swithin. The judge was all smiles, prepared to make a joke. I can't carry on my business from home. Some of the more sycophantic (laughs) members of the jury, I was sorry to see, laughed at this. You are married to Hermione, Swithin. I'm proud to be. I'm sure you are. And was your wife previously married, while she was at university, to Mark Cracknell, a fellow student? He was no good to her. Hopeless, drunk, and violent. He left her after a couple of unhappy years. Mm. But did he also leave her with a young son, Ben, who now sits here in the dock? He did. And did you take over Ben in your wife's second marriage and bring him up as your son? I was pleased to do so until this business happened. Mm, Perhaps we'll find out exactly what sort of a business this is. I should have thought that was perfectly obvious. Perhaps not quite as obvious as you might think. First of all, may I ask you for your opinion of Ben? Difficult, I have to say. Extremely difficult. At times, quite impossible. It wasn't what you might expect from a character witness, but it delighted the judge, who repeated, as he noted it down... Difficult. (coughs) At
4: times, impossible.
3: He's taken your name. He agreed to that, at least. His mother asked him. He never thanked me for it. Well, i would learned not to expect thanks from Ben. And I think he adopted your suggestion of calling himself chimes on his emails. As in the chimes of Big Ben. I thought he might enjoy the joke. And apparently
2: he did. He never said so.
4: He never said so. The
3: judge gave utterance like a ventriloquist's doll worked from the witness box. I want to ask you about his computer. I bought it for his 16th birthday. A 16th birthday present. The learned judge had clearly assumed the role of Big Sir Echo. It is in his bedroom, which is unusually
2: downstairs. He was making such a noise coming up to bed at all hours, we moved him down to what had been the farm office. We had it decorated nicely for him.
4: Decorated nicely?
3: Does that room have windows opening on the back of the house? I mean, it's possible to see into it by standing behind the building. Yes, it is. Have you ever used Ben's computer yourself? Never.
2: I told you, I bought it for him. I have all my own IT equipment in the converted barn. That's
3: where I run my business, to keep the family going. Let me ask you this. You know Felicity Halliday. I think you used to pick her up on the school run. I did, yes, before Ben caused all this trouble. I thought she was an extremely nice girl. I'm sure the jury thought so, too. Tell me, Mr. Swithin... Did you find her attractive? The judge looked like a referee who'd just been kicked on the shins by a delinquent player. Mr. Rumpole! I'm sure the prosecution will object to that question.
4: No objection, Your Honour.
3: I had briefed Adrian, the prosecutor, well, and he earned the judge's frown of displeasure. Chris, however, spoke up full of confidence. I'm
2: perfectly prepared to answer the question. I think any man would find her extremely attractive.
3: You say... Any man, Mr. Swithin, does that include any teenager? It certainly does, Your Honour. It certainly does. I want you to look at these emails. First of all, you have sworn that you never used Ben's computer. Uh, He knew how to handle it before we got it. I never touched it. I've told you that on my oath, Mr. Rumpel. He told you that, Mr. Rumpel. Mm. Then let's look at them. The first is one he sent to my chambers before a conference. Do you see that? Yes. Do you see that it's written in a sort of code? The words C, 2, and B are indicated by capital letters or numbers. Oh, that's the way young people send emails. <laughs> and yet in all the obscene emails to young Felicity, no such code is used. All the words are written out properly in full. I believe that is so. Hmm. You can take it from me that it is so. Is that the way middle-aged people write emails? Probably. Do you use any of these abbreviations when you send emails? I don't, personally. You spell and punctuate properly. I like to do so. You like to do so. I glanced at the jury. Did I detect a slight stir of renewed attention? Let me turn to another subject. Were you pleased by Ben's fondness for poetry? Ben has no time for poetry whatsoever, I'm sorry to say. Doesn't he Um, even know the names of the major poets? I don't think he does, you have a fine collection of books of poetry in your study, all arranged in alphabetical order from Arnold to Yeats. I read English at Cambridge. I'm greatly moved by fine poetry. Mm. And you admire the great poets of the last century. T.S. Eliot and W.B. Yeats, of course. Of course I do.
4: Mr. Rumpel, are you wasting the time of my court with this literary excursion? I'm sure Mr. Hodenot would think so. I have no objection at all, Milan. So far as you know,
3: the name Yates would mean nothing to young Ben. He's already said that your client has no interest in poetry, Mr. Rumper. I know he has such a pity. Ben has missed the pleasure of knowing that beautiful lyric, Leader and the Swan. I'm sure you have it well in mind, Mr. Swithin. The witness for once was silent. And I thought I saw for the first time on that handsome, slightly suntanned face... A hint of fear. Some of you may know the legend, members of the jury. The girl leader was raped by the King of the Gods, who disguised himself as a swan for the purpose. This is how Yeats describes it. I have the book
4: here. Mr. Hardinot, don't you object to Mr. Rumpel reading poetry to the jury? No objection, Your Honor, provided the piece is included in the exhibits. (laughs) This is from W.B. Yeats, Leader and the Swan."
3: A sudden blow, the great wings beating still above the staggering girl, her thighs caressed by the dark webs, her nape caught in his bill. He holds her helpless breast upon his breast. How can those terrified vague fingers push the feathered glory from her loosening thighs? And how can her body, lain in that white rush, but feel the strange heart beating? where it lies. A shudder in the loins engenders there the broken wall, the burning roof and tower, and Agamemnon dead." The words rang and resonated in the stuffy courtroom. Then I asked the witness to read out the relevant email. He seemed to have some difficulty finding the page, and further difficulty in reading it out. But in the end, he had no choice but to do so.
2: How can your terrified, vague fingers push my feathered glory from your loosening thighs? I will produce a a shudder in your loins. Ours will be an historic moment when I, the great bird god, swoop down on you.
3: Did you send that email to Felicity, Mr. Swithin? Were you Jupiter, hoping one day she might be your <gasps> shuddering girl? What on earth are you suggesting? I don't know whether it was just because you enjoyed sending erotic messages to a pretty young girl, or because you wanted revenge on a stepson that you've grown to hate. Perhaps it was for both reasons. <laughs> but you sent these emails, didn't you, Mr. Swithin? Mr. Rumpel, you have called Mr. Swithin as a character witness. You have no right to
4: cross-examine him. I've been waiting for the prosecution to object.
3: Perhaps my learned friend thinks the jury are entitled to an answer. Perhaps I should explain this to your Honour. That last email was sent only three weeks ago, just before this trial. Which I consider as an act of gross contempt. That may be so. It's dated midnight on the 17th, a Friday night, when my client was enjoying a party at an Italian restaurant. I shall be calling a witness, a Mr. Newcomb, an inquiry agent, who observed Mr. Swithin in my client's bedroom operating young Ben's computer. Ben? He's a pathological liar. He always has been. Werewolf, that's what we called him. He's an animal. No, worse than that, animals have some dignity. He's evil! He's wrecked our marriage! Mr. Swithin, I have to warn you that you needn't answer any question that's likely to incriminate you. Very well, I won't answer. But perhaps you'll tell us this. A simple question about the delightful aftershave I saw in your bathroom. What's it called some dashing masculine title like perhaps Machismo Number 3 for men? It was then that it happened, too quickly and far too unexpectedly for the court usher dozing in his chair or the officer in the dock to give chase. Chris Swithin left the witness box with a turn of speed that recalled the days when he'd won the hundred metres for his Cambridge college and was out of the town hall and pushing his way through the crowd in the marketplace. No one recognised him when he grabbed the rail of a moving bus or knew what happened when he got off at the next stop. Were his business contacts clever enough to get him out of the country, would he some day be extradited from southern Spain in a case of harassment? Perhaps not. All I know is that he was never seen again by his wife and stepson in Hartscombe.
4: Your Honour, under the circumstances, the prosecution doesn't intend to proceed further in this case. Mr. Hardinot. For once, you don't surprise me. Mm -hmm. Members of the jury, Mm -hmm. I direct you to return a verdict of not guilty.
3: I said goodbye to my helpful prosecutor outside the courtroom.
4: Thanks for all your help, Holinot. Bless you, Rompo. At least we were able to do an act of justice.
3: Hermione was crying profusely. (laughs) and dabbing at her eyes with a crushed handkerchief.
6: I'm sorry, Mrs. Swithin. I had to find out the truth.
3: But it was Ben who did the comforting.
6: It's all right, Mum. We can it be all right? Oh, Ben.
3: And I believe that in time they will be, with Christopher Swithin no longer ruling the roost. It was... She who must be obeyed, who, as ever, had the last word?
2: I always thought that ghastly Swithin man was a rotten apple, Rumpole. Anyone who can walk around smelling of a glorified lavatory cleaner rejoicing in the name of Machismo 3 is obviously up to no good.
3: I don't know about that. I rather liked it myself. Exactly, Rumpole. The defense rests.
0: In Rumpole and the Teenage Werewolf by John Mortimer, Horace Rumpole was played by Timothy West, Hilda Rumpole, Prunella Scales, Hermione Switham, Felicity Montague, and Chris Swithin Philip Jackson, Mr. Beasley, Nicholas Leprevo, Ben Switham, Matt Smith, Judge Dennis Wintergreen, Carl Johnson, Adrian Hoddenot, Sean Baker, and Felicity Halliday, Ellie Bevan. Rumpole and the Teenage Werewolf was directed by Marilyn Imry and is a Catherine Bailey production for BBC Radio 4.